I invite you to turn this evening to the Word of God, to the book of Psalms, and uh, I'll read Psalm 146, which is also the sermon text this evening. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man, in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and widow. But the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion. To all generations, praise the Lord. Thus far, the reading of God's word, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know what they say, that is what they say about people who speak to themselves. Maybe you're one of those people who speaks to themselves, and you can be sure that your family, even if they don't say anything now, they're they're watching Because when you speak to yourself, they say, it's a sign of decline, and you're on your way out. But that's just what they say. That's not at all what the Word of God says. In fact, if you notice the first verse of the psalm, you have the psalmist speaking to himself. He says, O my soul, praise the Lord. Now, biblically speaking, the problem is not if you speak to yourself. The problem is what you say when you do. That if you say the right things, no, it's better said, you ought to say the right things to yourself. In the midst of all of your distress and confusion, you ought to say the right things about yourself. And the right things about yourself are always the truth about God. And so here in the psalmist, we're able to eavesdrop on what the psalmist is saying as he speaks to his own soul. Although even that is not entirely accurate, because you notice the way the psalm ends. He says, The Lord shall reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. And so it seems like the psalmist, as he goes through step by step, he first addresses his own soul, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then as he gets going, He ends by addressing the whole congregation of the people of God, the whole gathered church of the Lord Jesus Christ, so that it isn't sufficient for only his soul to praise the Lord. The whole church must join him in the adoration of God. Praise the Lord. So what does the psalmist say to himself and then to us as well? The first thing he does is issue a warning. You'll see that in verses 3 to 4, where he says, Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. 
His spirit departs, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. And when he refers to the princes here, he refers to the movers and shakers in society. Those who are able to speak to society, and when they speak, things happen. It really is an address to the governments, the rulers, those who are in control of everyday affairs. And if you know the human heart at all, you know that this is not a superfluous warning. Because that seems to be our native inclination. That whenever trouble arises that is too much for us to carry, we look to government to protect us, to care for us, and to make the decisions on our behalf. And so if there is a pandemic, the government will lead us out. If there are economic troubles, the government will inject money into the economy and protect us. If there is price gouging, the government will set up uh, uh, restrictions to limit the ability of, of wealthy companies to do that. We often are tempted to trust our governments, princes, for our own help. And if that's not your inclination... It is still true that our inclination is to trust in fellow humans. Here's just an, an easily done diagnostic test. You, you hear bad news. What is your first inclination when you hear bad news? Well, if you're at home or your spouse is home, it's to speak to him or her about it. But if they're not home, it's to get on the phone and to tell them that way. Because we tend to turn to other people when troubles overwhelm us. So when we're sick, we go to the doctor. When we have difficulties in our mind, we go to the psychologist or psychiatrist. And we often go to others before we go to the Lord our God. Not to say that princes and others cannot help us. Of course they can. But what the psalmist is saying is that we ought not to put our confidence in princes. As if our only help comes from those who are like us though perhaps somewhat stronger than us. And I say this is not superfluous because this is what we see writ large throughout the Scriptures. Here are the people of God uh, being attacked by the Assyrians, and they know they have the promise of God, that if they would just call upon the name of the Lord, the Assyrians might come against them in one way, but they're going to flee from them in seven ways. But what does Israel do? They speak to Egypt and Develop an alliance there at the hope that Egypt will deliver them from Assyria. It is so significant that we ought not to put our trust in princes nor in a son of man. But what we notice here is that uh, he doesn't just tell us why we ought not to or tell himself why he should not to, should not do that. He argues for it. Why shouldn't we put our trust in princes? Well, he says in verse 3, in whom there is no help. There's no salvation in our fellow man. Now, they might be able to help us financially or medically or psychologically. But for the real need for ourselves, they're unable to touch it. They can take care of our body, but they cannot take care of our souls. And so what we really need, salvation of our souls, princes cannot do it. No one like us is able to. So that's the first reason why. 
And then he gives a second reason in verse 4 why we should not put our trust in princes, and that is because of the frailty of the princes themselves. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. So someone can have this grand plan to, to help you in your need. Have all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. And uh, nothing is unthought of. It's a thoroughgoing plan. It's, it's perfectly suited for you. But just before he begins to execute the plan, he dies. And along with him, his plans perish. Futile to put your trust in princes. There is in the town of Oban, Scotland, a very helpful monument to this very fact. It's a small town on the west coast of Scotland. It's really a gorgeous place. It's a town of 9,000 inhabitants, but it becomes a tourist attraction in the summer months. And if you catch it on a sunny day, and they tell me you can, it's really a remarkable little town. You stand in the harbor, and the whole town is nestled in front of you. And then up on the hill, on Battery Hill, there's this quite massive structure. It's made of granite. It looks a bit like the Roman Colosseum because it was patterned after the Roman Colosseum. There, there are two tiers of granite stone filled with massive arches in those tiers. It was a building designed and begun to be built by John McCaig, who was a wealthy banker. He started building it in, in seven, in, in, in 1897 and it's called McCaig's Tower. He had these wonderful plans. Uh, along with those two tiers of stone, he was going to have a central tower, and in the tower itself, he was going to have arches, and, and he'd have images of his whole family uh, in those arches. The place was to house a, a, an art museum, and uh, an art gallery, rather, and, and a museum. And uh, he died in 1902, and when he died, his plans perished. And so all you have is is the two circular walls. There's no glass in the windows. There's nothing on the inside of the building. There's no roof over it. It stands there as a monument to human folly. So that not only is it called McCaig's Tower, it is also called McCaig's Folly. He started and then he died. And when he died, his plans perished. And so the psalmist is saying to himself, probably from his own experience where he has experienced uh, the disappointment of humans, as so many of us have, he's saying, don't put your trust in princes. It's sheer folly to do so, because their help is futile, because they themselves are fragile. But it's not just that he wants to warn you away from putting your trust in princes, though he does that. But what he really wants you to do is to put your confidence in the Lord. That's why he speaks ill of the princes. It's so that you would despair of help there, and that you would thrust yourself solely and wholly upon the care of the God of Jacob. And uh, again, just as he, he argued why you should not put your trust in princes, now he argues for you why you should put your trust in the Lord. Why would you do that? Who is the Lord that you should place your confidence in him? And uh, the psalmist uh, tells himself, 
and he tells us why it is that the Lord is such a, a great one uh, to have your trust in, and why blessing flows and happiness comes if you have the God of Jacob as your helper. So what is it about the God, about God, that he reminds himself of? Well, first of all, he tells us that God is strong. He does this in verse 6. The Lord is the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, the God who keeps truth forever. And this is, of course, a, a reflection on the first chapters of the scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And if you ask how God did that, the answer is he did it by his word. He said, let there be, and there was. What, what striking majesty, what great power must reside in this God for him to call into existence everything from nothing so that all the mammoth mountains are a mighty testimony to the maker. And his greatness is not only seen in, in the things that are large, in, in the universe, in all of its spaciousness, but it's also seen in, in the microorganisms, the, the things that you cannot see with the, the human eye, that you must place under the microscope. It just shows the wisdom, the brilliance, and the power of God who called all these things into being. He's a great and a, and a mighty God. And it's not just that he creates all things and then allows things to go on. No, he's the God who keeps truth forever. And I, I think what the psalmist is saying there is that, that it's not just that God made all things, but he continues to uphold all things so that this world runs at his commands. He calls things into being and then directs all the affairs of the world. So that by his eternal counsel and providence, everything in this world goes on according to the will of this sovereign God and his involvement in this world. He's a great God. No one can thwart his plans. No one can say to him, why have you done this? No one can stay his hand and say, you may not do that. No, of course not. He's the God who created the heavens and the earth and besides him, there is no other. He is a strong God. And I think we're helped if we think about that more than we do as believers. When uh, things overwhelm us, when this world in all of its craziness confuses us, when decisions are made in Ottawa or in Edmonton that are contrary to the plans and purposes of God, and we wonder where in the world uh, the future is going to go, we need to remember that uh, God is the one who made the heaven and the earth, the seas, and all that is in them. And he's the God who keeps faith forever. He's strong. And you see the saints doing this throughout uh, the scriptures. You might remember that passage in Jeremiah 32, where Jeremiah has just been told that uh, after the exile, the Israelites are going to come back into the land. There's going to be buying and selling. And, and uh, Jeremiah says, I just can't understand how that's going to happen. The exile is going to be so devastating. And yet you're promising that things are going to return to normal uh, after a while. And then he says, ah, Lord God, you made the heavens and the earth by your outstretched hand and powerful arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. He reminded himself of the greatness of God. And you see the early Christians do this in, in Acts 4. Uh, 
Peter and John are arraigned before the Sanhedrin, forbidden any longer to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus. And after they're released from prison, uh, they meet up with uh, their fellow uh, disciples, their fellow believers in Acts 4. And uh, there is a prayer meeting that breaks out. And notice what they say. How do they start their prayer meeting? They've just come across, uh, come up against the might of the religious leaders. They've been forbidden to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus. And they say, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. They reminded themselves that God is strong. And so that's what the psalmist does. My soul bless the Lord. Why? Because he is strong. But he's more than strong. Because it's possible, isn't it, to be strong and unkind. To not care about people at all. So to never use your strength for someone else's good. In fact, it's possible to be strong and to be oppressive. To use other people's weakness against them instead of using your strength for them. Children, imagine that you're driving down the highway and all of a sudden your tire is punctured. So you pull over to the side of the road, and for some reason, you or your parents are are unable to to change the tire. You think, oh, I sure hope someone stops and helps us. And you look at all these vehicles racing by. You see these these uh, men, big burly men in these in these big pickup trucks, and you think they're strong. I know this. They look strong. Their trucks are strong. They must be strong. Uh, They're probably so strong that they don't even need a jack. They could just lift up our vehicle and undo the lug nuts with their hands and and then uh, change the tire and and off we go. But but they don't stop because they don't care about you. They have their own agendas. they got their own things to do. They're not going to stop and and help someone else. Of course not. They're, They're too important to do that. They're strong, but they're unkind. And so you wait, and then all of a sudden you see a, the headlights in your rear window, and someone's pulling over. You think, ah, finally. It's wonderful. People are still kind in this world. And and you wait for someone to to step out of the car, but it seems to take a very long time. And then the door opens, and uh, out comes this old lady. And she's she's got a a cane in her hand. And and, uh, no no offense to old ladies who have canes. and uh, she she comes up to the window. She says, "What's what's wrong, Sonny?" And you explain the problem. I just, my tire's punctured, and, and I'm unable to, to to fix it myself. And she says, "Oh, oh, I would love to help you, but but my back's not as good as it used to be, uh, so I, I can't help. I wish I could help you, but but I'm unable to help you." And so uh, she's kind, but she's not strong, and. Uh, and of course, if you had to choose between uh, those who are strong but unkind or those who are kind but not strong, of, of course, you, you would always want the person who is, who is uh, kind, though not strong. I mean, if you wanted to spend time, you'd rather spend time with that lovely lady who went out of her way to say that she'd love to help you but couldn't because she didn't have the strength that she used to have, rather than to spend time with these cocky, arrogant, uh, burly men who don't give a rip about you whatsoever. But the wonderful thing about God is that you never have to choose 
between someone strong or someone kind, because he is both strong and kind. And that's what the psalmist tells himself. So he surveys society. He thinks about those who are most needy and vulnerable. He thinks about the oppressed, the hungry, the prisoners, the blind, those bowed down, the strangers, the fatherless, the widow. And he asks himself, now, how does God treat all these people who, who have nothing to offer him, who are so weak and helpless in themselves? How does he treat them? And, and the resounding answer is he, he shows kindness to them. Yes, for those who are oppressed, he vindicates them. He, he stands up for them. For the hungry, he gives food. For the prisoners, probably unjustly imprisoned, he gives freedom. The blind can see. Those who are bowed down, he raises up. The strangers, the fatherless, the widow, the Lord champions their cause. Because not only is he strong, he's also kind. And demonstrates that kindness particularly to the psalmist's eyes in his loving, compassionate care for those who are in need. Why should I praise the Lord, my soul? Tell me. Well, because the Lord is strong. But is he kind? Yes, he's kind. But will he be strong and kind forever? Or is this just a flash in the night? Is this just an aberration in his otherwise malevolent care? No, he will be strong and kind forever. The Lord shall reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. That's the problem with humanity. They, their plans perish. But God is the one who keeps truth forever. He's unchangeably strong and kind. There's no regime change on the horizon. There's no one who's going to unseat him from the throne. What he is today, he will be tomorrow. Because he's an unchangeable God. The one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, will he be there for me tomorrow? Of course he will. He's there for you today, isn't he? But what about for my children? Yes, of course. What about my grandchildren? Yes, through all generations. He is the faithful God who's strong and kind and strong and kind forever. That's the way the psalmist argues. He wants you to have confidence, not in yourself or in any other human, but in the God, the creator of the ends of the earth, the one who cares for the needy. And then I want you to notice uh, the contrast that he draws at the end of verse 8 and the end of verse 9, where you see there, in the end of verse 8, the Lord loves the righteous. The end of verse 9, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. And what the psalmist is doing is reminding us that though God is strong and kind forever, he's not strong and kind forever for all people. This is what he is to the righteous. But to the wicked, he uses his strength to turn their way upside down. He uses his strength against them. For the righteous, he uses his strength for them. You see, there are only two categories of people in the Bible. And, and you'll know that in the Old Testament, that, that the two categories are the righteous and the wicked. Just think of how the book of Psalms begins. The first chapter ends this way. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. You're either righteous or you're ungodly. 
or wicked, as other translations have it. So what does it mean to be righteous? And these are important questions because these are questions that invite you to examine yourself and to see in what category you are so that you might know whether or not you can have confidence in this God. So who are the righteous? Who are the wicked? And I think it's important to note that the distinguishing characteristics of the righteous is not or are not that they always do righteous things or only do righteous things. And the significant characteristic about the wicked is not that the wicked only does wicked things, as if they never do anything that is right. Now, it's true, of course, that the righteous are characterized by righteousness and the wicked are characterized by wickedness. But the real significant distinguishing characteristic between the righteous and the wicked is not in the first place how they live. That's only evidence of this important point, and that is, what have they done with God? You see, the righteous are those who have bent the knee and have sworn allegiance to the King of Kings the God of gods, besides whom there is no other. They have entrusted themselves to his care. They have despaired of their own help or the help of anyone else. They do not look to Assyria or Egypt or Babylon. They look to the Lord their God and find their strength and confidence in him alone. And the wicked, on the other hand, well, they are like Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That's their response. We can do this alone. We're self-made men and women. We don't need to be weak and wimpy and have God as a crush. We can we can do our own thing and go our own way, and we're doing it fine. Thank you very much. It's really a question of what you do with God. Or to put it in New Testament terms, it's really a question what you do with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, of course... The psalm, as all scriptures, the psalm is about the Lord Jesus. And if you think about that with deliberation, then you think, of course it is. Because who is the Lord Jesus Christ except someone who is strong and kind and strong and kind forever? You can see this in the gospel accounts. You say, what do you mean see this in the gospel accounts? Jesus being strong. He's weak. He's, uh, he comes into this world as a, a little child, helpless, depending upon his mother for his daily nourishment. And then uh, Herod, the king, certainly seems stronger than the Lord Jesus, uh, seeks to destroy him in, in Bethlehem. And then his disciples misunderstand him and the Jews uh, plot to kill him, and then they hand him over to the Romans, and the Romans treat him with, with injustice and unfairness and, and spit upon him and press a crown of thorns up, upon his head and mock him. What do you mean strong? Oh, yes, he is strong. Because uh, before the Lord Jesus was born at Bethlehem, he had an existence, you know. He was... Uh, from all eternity, living in fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he is the one, as uh, we heard this morning from Colossians 1, he's the one by whom all things were made. Or as John's Gospel said, there's nothing made that has not been made by the Word who became flesh. He is the Eternal One. 
who is strong and mighty, and no one thwarts his purposes. And he has an existence not only before he came into this world, but he has an existence after he came, after he left this world. So that even now, where is he? He's at the right hand of the Father. He's the one to whom all authority has been given in heaven and on earth. He's not weak. He's strong. Don't let the events of his life, as they're illustrated for us in the gospel, don't let them mislead you as if somehow the Lord Jesus is a weakling. No, he's strong. And in fact, you can see glimpses of his strength throughout the gospel accounts. So there are the money changers in the temple. Our Lord Jesus drives them out. Uh, there's this... Uh, tempestuous sea that threatens his disciples and and he stands up in the boat in the midst of this raging storm and he says peace be still and everything is calm so that the disciples said what what kind of man is this because it's an unveiling of of christ of his glory of his strength and power he stands at the grave of lazarus and he says lazarus come forth and this man who has been dead for four days comes out of the tomb what do you mean Jesus is weak? He's strong, I tell you. And, and in, in the, the depths of his weakness, which is when he was hanging on the cross, that was the greatest display of his strength. Because by his death in weakness, he defeated the enemy of our souls. He triumphed over Christ, over Satan, by his death on the cross. As uh, Thomas Goodwin says, he took the crossbeam of the cross and crushed his enemy with it. In his greatest display of weakness, our Lord Jesus was inexpressibly strong. And he's kind, very kind. Again, you can't read the Gospels without seeing that. Here are the, the crowds. They're, they're spending time with him, listening to his teaching, so that they're going without food. and. Uh, his disciples said, Jesus, you need to send these people home because they're hungry. They're going to faint on the way. And Jesus says, no, you feed them. And uh, you know what he does. He, he ends up feeding uh, the hungry because he's kind. He sees the crowds, that they are like sheep without a shepherd. They're, they're receiving no leadership. They're, they're spiritually lost. And even though he, he had gone with his disciples to be alone with them, Away from people, he saw the crowd and he had compassion on them and he, and he began to teach them. Or, or think about uh, that mother. It was just coincidence, wasn't it? Not really, of course it wasn't. But this mother is uh, surrounded by a crowd and uh, she's on her way to the, to the graveyard, to the cemetery to deposit the remains of her son. And Jesus just happens to come by and uh, he says to the young man, arise and he takes the young man and he gives him back to his mother. Such a kind, compassionate Lord Jesus. His heart goes out to those who are in need. Or, or think about this one. This is the one that, that always throws me. A blind Bartimaeus is calling out for Jesus, the son of David, to have mercy on him. And all the crowds are saying, why don't you shut up? He doesn't have time for you. And Jesus uh, stops. He says, call him here. So here's blind Bartimaeus standing before the king of kings, the Lord of glory. And uh, and he says, Bartimaeus, what is it that you want me 
to do for you. Doesn't just that doesn't make sense, does it? It's just upside down. Bartimaeus ought to be serving Jesus, not Jesus serving Bartimaeus. But that's an expression of the kindness of the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's kind. The leper comes up to him and says, Lord, if you can, no, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. We read that from Mark's gospel. And Jesus, filled with compassion, touches the man. And he says, I can be clean. Such a compassionate Savior. And you children, you need to know how tender and kind the Lord Jesus is. Because when uh, mothers brought their little children to Jesus, he took these little children in his arms, laid his hands on them and blessed them. The Lord Jesus loved children. And the children loved the Lord Jesus because he was so kind and gentle and tender. You want to know how kind he is? Then come with me to the cross. Who would do what he did for rebels? Who would take upon himself what was most repugnant to him? Human sin and disobedience and rebellion. Who would be willing to be called a liar and an adulterer and a murderer and a porn uh, observer who who would want to do that when when you are holy and pure and righteous and and without sin who would who would want to be known as the greatest sinner the world has ever known who would do that for someone else well the lord jesus would do that and he would do that even though he knew that taking upon himself the sins of his people all of their egregious wickedness and their filthy disobedience to take upon himself their sins meant that he would also be inviting upon himself the wrath of God and being forsaken by the God whom he loved and served unstintingly throughout his whole earthly ministry with whom he had fellowship. He knew what it would be, what it would cost him to do so. But in his kindness, he went to the cross for sinners. He's strong. But he's also kind. And he's strong and kind forever. You might think that uh, now that the Lord Jesus is in heaven, he's forgotten about his people on earth. You know, uh, out of sight, out of mind, you have good friendships, and then these people move away. It's not that you have any dis, uh, discomfort with them, or you've had any any uh, struggle or tension. It's just that they're gone, and so the the friendship seems to be over. So maybe Jesus is like that. Not a chance. Jesus in heaven is glorified. And uh, that means his heart of compassion is even more capacious than it has ever been before. He has more room in his heart uh, to love the needy, to have compassion upon the weak, to care for those who have no strength of their own. He is strong and kind and he's strong and kind forever. That's our Lord Jesus. And this is why the psalmist says, this is who you need. This is the only way you'll be happy if you have the God of Jacob for your help. If your hope is in the Lord, your God. The God who has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing ungodlike in Jesus at all. And this is the kind of God you need so that when you have him as your helper, you are blessed, you're happy. You don't need anyone else. When you despair of all self-confidence, when you eschew all self-reliance, 
when you recognize that you've come to the, the limits of your own ability, what you need to know is to have this God as your God, because nothing else will do. No one else will help you when you stand before the judgment seat of God and uh, your t- sins testify against you. It's not going to help you that you've been a member of Cornerstone United Church. Your elders will do you no good. Uh, the, your parents will not be a blessing to you. And you will not have your resources yourself to, to deal with this situation, this predicament. The only help you can have that will make you happy is if you have the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wonderful thing is that the Lord Jesus Christ offers himself to sinners. He says, take me. I know what it will cost for me to be your helper. But I'm willing to do that. Why, Lord Jesus? Well, not because you're good. It's because I love you. Because my heart is full of compassion for the needy. My heart is full of pity for those in distress. And so if you ask the Lord Jesus to be your helper, he will be your helper. That's just the kind of God he is. He's strong. He's kind. He's strong and kind forever. And if you do not have the Lord Jesus Christ, well then, you're in dire straits. He loves the righteous, but notice what happens to the wicked. He turns their way upside down. The picture in my mind is of the wicked is they're like a Jenga tower. You kids know what a Jenga tower is. You take a block from the bottom and place it on the top, and you're careful not to knock it over. But the life of the wicked is is like a Jenga tower on a shaky table. And there's just one shake of the table. And their life comes crashing down. The Lord frustrates the way of the wicked. The way of the wicked will come to ruin. Anyone who does not have the God of Jacob for their help is in trouble in this life and then for all eternity. So he's saying, why would you do anything else but take this God as your God? Why would you trust in princes? It's no good. They aren't able to help you. But this God will. He can help you. He's strong. He will help you. He's kind. And he will help you forever in this life and in the life to come. There's one thing I have to do yet before I close, and that's just highlight what he what title he gives to God in verse 5. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help. Now, that's not an uncommon title for the Lord. Often he's the God of Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, Psalm 20, verse 1, speaks about the God being the God of Jacob. Uh, Psalm 46, the verses 7 and 11 speak about it. The prophets speak about it. But here I think it has particular significance because you remember who Jacob was. You children know what Jacob's name means. He's the schemer, the deceiver. Jacob is a self-made man. Whatever his troubles are, Jacob is able to scheme and plan and to get himself out of his own trouble. So in Genesis 32, remember he has just left Laban, can't go back to Laban, but now he has to go meet his brother Esau, the one uh, from whom he swindled the the first uh, the rights of the firstborn, and he he's afraid, and so he says, "I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to divide my massive wealth in into small groups. Let a group go ahead, 
space, then another group space, then another group space, and I'll just overwhelm my brother with my wealth. And certainly that will appease my brother. It's the great plan. This will, this will work. I know it will work, he says. So he sends his family and his flocks ahead of him. And then he goes back over the brook Jabbok. And there he meets with God. And what does God do? God who comes in the form of man. It's God, I believe, the second person of the Trinity before he took on human flesh. He comes in the form of man and he wrestles with Jacob all night long. And Jacob is prevailing. Because he's he's a strong man, of course. And then the angel touches the, the, the socket of Jacob's hip and he throws it out of joint. And Jacob is useless as a wrestler because he can no longer pivot and, and throw his weight o- over his assailant. And so in his weakness now, remember what Jacob says, I will not let you go until you Bless me. And that's where the Lord wants you to be this evening. Not self-confident, but self-aware of your own weakness. Overwhelmed by your calling as a mother, as a father, to raise your children. Overwhelmed by your responsibilities as a Christian to live for him. Recognizing that you just don't have it within yourself to do it. That unless the Lord God helps me, I'm in trouble. So in your weakness, you cling to this God. And he says, you're happy if you have the God of Jacob for your help. If your hope is in the Lord, your God, the one who is strong and kind and strong and kind forever. And then I love, this is the last thing, and I love how that passage ends in Genesis 32. Remember, uh, Jacob leaves, he's limping. And then it says, and the sun rose upon him. And really, this is the happiest place to be as a Christian. Knowing your own weakness and frailty. Going through life limping. But going through life limping with the smile of the God of Jacob upon you. No wonder the psalmist says, I'm going to praise this Lord all my life. As long as I have been, I'm going to praise the Lord. And no wonder he says to you, Hey Zion, let me tell you about this God. Strong, kind, strong and kind forever. Praise him as well, won't you? For that's where your happiness and your hope lies in knowing him. Amen.